Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. We are honored tonight to have with us Oscar-nominated film stage and television actress, author, and lifelong advocate for the arts, Nancy Olson Livingston, better known as Nancy Olson, who first came to our classic film attention with her key role as Joe Gillis's girlfriend in Billy Wilder's timeless classic, Sunset Boulevard. Her recently published autobiography, A Front Row Seat, is an apt title for a fun and truly informative look at show business from her unique perspective. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm great. It's so great to talk to you. Um, I, I have a million questions, but I want to start off with, since you've been an observer of the arts for most of your life, I'm curious how you feel about the movie business today, which seems to be very different from the movie business you grew up in. And how would you characterize it? I, I don't know how to characterize it because I've really disappeared from it. Um, I do want to see Tar and I do want to see The Fableman, uh, but but I, I have not seen anything. I really, I hate to admit that, but movies have changed or maybe I've changed. Certainly I have. Um, and for me to get to the theater, it better be really worthwhile. <laughs> Do you remember the last time you were in a movie theater? Um, yes. Let's see. Do I remember it? I can't remember the movie, but I was there maybe a couple of years ago. Sure. But sure. A, on the you know a Screen Actors member um, guild member. I have, I do receive uh, the the DVDs so that right. over the years I've been able to keep up with, you know, the product. But One this, I confess, I'm behind the times. No, completely. You know, speaking to you, you have a window into a place that I was not there. And I think that your, your wealth of historical information, but I'm curious about um, when in the book, which is very readable, and I highly recommend the book to anybody who enjoys show business stories, uh, you talk a lot about the fact that you were given a very classical education. You were exposed to opera early on. You were exposed to theater, music, concerts, violin, whatever, and uh, in your native Milwaukee. And uh, but you don't talk too much about going to the movies. Were you a movie going family? Well, you know something, my mother, highly educated, both of my parents, and they were very interested that I should become educated too. And that's why I was taken to every theater, opera, symphony orchestra that visited Milwaukee. Also, I remember on Sunday afternoon when we had our, our midday meal on Sunday at one o'clock, at two o'clock, we turned on the radio and listened to Deems Taylor talking about what was being played by the New York Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall. And that was a ritual. That was every Sunday. 
And I, I also listened to the opera on Saturday with Milton Cross <laughs> describing the story, the sets, what was going on. Um, so I had a deep interest in that. I remember she was very careful about what I should see and not see when I was a little girl. And the first movie I ever saw was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I have to tell you something. I think that it is a work of art that is absolutely unforgettable. When Snow White dances with the six little guys, <laughs> the dwarfs, uh, there is something so magical about it. The music, the grace and of, of the movements, uh, it, it's extraordinary. And, and the next film I saw was Wizard of Oz. And I got to know Judy Garland later in life. And uh, this, she was a, an incredible performer and sang probably better than anybody else. I think that to be a movie star at the age of 13 or 12 or whatever it was, that's, that's hard because your life is narrowed into a dark space, a huge soundstage from morning till night, and you have a tutor teach you. You don't go to school. You're not with other children your own age. And I, I found the same true, by the way, of Natalie uh, Wood. She, she started as a child star. And it, 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 you, you miss a part of growing up. You just do. But those two movies, I can still watch with great joy and enthusiasm. Then, of course, the next major drama was... Gone um, with the Wind? No, 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 no. The big movie, um, oh my gosh, with uh, Clark Gable and... What is the name of it? Come on. Clark Gable? With Clark Gable and, and the British star. Oh, well, I said Gone with the Wind. What? Gone, Gone with the Wind. Gone, excuse me. for You have to excuse my memory. Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind has images in it that still stay with me to this day. The use of the camera to show the suffering in the southern city of the the southern army dying on the uh, you know in a parking space or in a park huge oh on the streets street. of Atlanta sure of in course Atlanta I mean come on it was that was an extraordinary movie truly and I don't know do they still make movies quite like that anymore. And there, there have been some interesting movies of, of the big historical epics like that. It's interesting. My mother had a memory, as I told you in our pre-interview, my mother was born in Milwaukee and went to see Gone with the Wind in Milwaukee, probably at the same time you saw it. And she said that there were, a, I don't know whether the usherettes were dressed in hoop skirts, but somebody was coming down the aisle in hoop skirts during that opening of, of, uh, of uh, Gone with the Wind. Um, 
Well, you know, these are these are movies that continue to be shown. Of course, Gone with the Wind now is considered a bit controversial in the way the the black yeah. servants are portrayed, but yeah. such an epic quality picture. Well, you you describe very carefully in your book how you eventually came out to California after school in the Midwest and you went to UCLA and you were staying with your aunt and uncle in the Pacific Palisades and um you got an opportunity to make uh, a, a well you you were signed to be a contract player at Paramount Pictures can you talk a little bit how that moment happened well i i was in every play every musical every comedy every drama at because i was a theater arts major at UC, UCLA and I did one play and I got a, a, I was getting dressed and ready to go home after it was over and there was a tap on the door and it where we were you know the actors were and there was the head of the talent department from Paramount who said this is my here's my card uh please call me and I would like you to please we I think we'd like to probably make a test for you, of you I called him and I went to visit him. I did a, the screen test and they signed me to a ten, seven year contract for $300 a week. I was not yet 21, I was 20, going on 21. And uh, I, you know, my allowance stayed the same. I still drove the car that my parents brought from Milwaukee for me because I was not old enough to have to take the money for myself. So my allowance never changed, I mean, life went on. And I was called one day and said, um, You're, you, we're gonna loan you to 20th Century Fox to do a movie called Canadian Pacific. And I said, well, send me, please send me the script. They said, we will, but you're going to do it. We have said yes. And I said, well, I'm going to school, when is it? Well, it's at the end of the summer. So it'll be, you'll be fine. You can do it and then go back to school in the fall. I said, okay. And I got the script and it was the part of somebody who was half Indian, a Canadian Indian. It was in color. And it, the, the lead actor, uh, what's his name? Randolph Scott. Randolph Scott was, one year older than my father. And you're supposed to be his love interest. And I'm his love interest. And the, it's in color. And I'm a half, a half Indian. I said, wait a minute. I called and I said, there's a terrible mistake. I said, do you, is there anything about me? I'm a Scandinavian, half Swedish, half Norwegian. That looks like an Indian. They said, you've got dark blonde hair. They'll just make it darker in the morning and you're half. And that explains how you look. And the, the value of that experience was that I learned about how movies are made, what the camera does, what the director does, how, how really the director keeps all the pieces together. And therefore I was, much more prepared to do the next film. And that happened because I was so fascinated when I had some afternoons off, I'd drive over to Paramount and they'd let me on the lot and I walked around 
and visited the sound stages and the various films that were being made. I was fascinated with all of that. And Billy Wilder would stop me as I'm going through the various alleys and say, I want to talk to you. What is UCLA like? What was growing up in Milwaukee like? You're a doctor's daughter. What was that about? How did you handle that? And this, I thought, what in the world? Why is he so interested? And all of a sudden, I got a call, and they said, well, your next assignment is a film called Sunset Boulevard, and you're going to play the role of Betty Schaefer, and we're going to send you the script. <laughs> well, what a difference between Canadian Pacific and South and and Sunset Boulevard. It's it's funny how as a young uh, ingenue, you're kind of born by the winds. You have no control whatsoever as to what you're doing. You basically they point you in a direction and you've got to march. Oh, absolutely. That that was totally how the business worked. They gave you the assignments, and if you didn't accept them, you you, you were off. You, they got rid of you. Goodbye. No more money. Contract is stopped. No more anything. And you can't go with anybody else because we own you. What was your first impression of Billy Wilder when he stopped you in the alley? I thought he was extremely, he spoke extremely well. He was intensely interested, which made me wonder why. And when I was, when I received the script, what occurred to me, and ever since has occurred to me, that the character is an aspiring writer. And I was a student. I had a very educated background and I spoke possibly well. And that, Therefore, you might believe that I had the quality of someone who might want to be a successful writer. And he obviously wanted one thing from me, and that was to be totally me. I even wore my own clothes. All the wardrobe that Edith had sent over, he said, no, 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 no. I liked what Nancy looked, wore when she visited the set yesterday. What kind of choices was Edith Head sending your way? Were they too glamorous? No, they were just not me. Not you? And I'm a great wardrobe, by the way, because I was going to school. I was go going to the studio. And I also, I'd lived in Milwaukee. and I didn't know where to shop. I mean, Los Angeles was totally new to me. So I put myself together as well as I could, but it was obviously, that's what he wanted. Did you have any, uh, when you went to UCLA, there were obviously some students there that were a little older than you. Did you have anybody mentoring you at all, helping you out at the university that could guide you a little bit or were you totally on your own? I was totally on my own, but I had, a wonderful group of professors who felt that I had something worthwhile mm -hmm. to do. And therefore they kept putting me in uh, their films and 
uh, and they shows. Oh, excuse me, in their shows, right. and they giving me the leads and give. And I mean, I was doing Shakespeare, Moliere, Tennessee Williams. It's a huge, wonderful education, by the way, right. because you're going to school, you're going to a university, and you're studying history and English and what in the world, and so you get a, some knowledge about how the world works and how it doesn't. And that all is terrific in terms of playing a role. A Nancy, character. Nancy um, this arriving at Paramount kind of coincides a little bit during the period of the Hollywood blacklist, the whole, uh, the, the, the hunt for supposed communists and all of that. I know Billy Wilder was dealing with some of that because he was friends with Joe Mankiewicz. And there's a little corollary to the Sunset Boulevard movie in a way, because um, I, when I was at Showtime, I developed a movie about um, Joe Mankiewicz's battle with Cecil B. DeMille, who it was obviously is a character in Sunset Boulevard. Uh, it, I don't know if you know the story, Joe Mankiewicz uh, did not want a loyalty oath at the Directors Guild. And Cecil B. DeMille demanded that there be a loyalty oath. And when Joe Mankiewicz finished making All About Eve about the same time you were making Sunset Boulevard, he went off to Europe and Cecil B. DeMille actually had a loyalty oath hoisted upon the Directors Guild. And when Mankiewicz came back and found out about it, he objected. He said, there's now a blacklist at the Directors Guild. But this is this is a whole thing with Billy. I was, that's why I was curious if you knew anything about that period during that period. No, I, that you, very <clears throat> from me. And also, by the way, that's after I did Sunset, I was immediately put in a film called Mr. Music with Bing Crosby. I was so, again, with a man who was older than my father. This was ridiculous. I was much too young. But I had a great friendship with Bing. We became uh, wonderfully good friends and it remained that way forever, really. And then immediately after that, I was put into Union Station. Right. Now, in the, in the meantime, I have met a very interesting man from New York who is, is already written Brigadoon, which was a huge success on Broadway and a great, it's a work of art. And one of my favorite musicals, the score, the sport. Yes, the score is wonderful. And he becomes romantically involved with me and asks me to marry him. So the last thing I did at, at um, Paramount after Union Station was Submarine Command, which was a ridiculous film with Bill again. And I said to Paramount, I'm through. I, I'm, I don't want to be a movie star. I decided that, by the way, on the set of Sunset, when I saw the story of Norma Desmond. And also I was there from seven in the morning, hair and makeup until nine, on the set at nine till 12, on the set at one to six. And then six days a week, I never saw my friends. I never saw my classmates ever again. I went back to the Palisades, took a shower, got myself all ready for bed and had a little supper and studied for the next day. What kind of life? 
was that? And I, I also understood somewhat, it's become much more revealed to me, but I understood that at that time in particular, movie stars were commodities. They were exaggerated. They were more, they were, they told the public they're more beautiful than they really were. They're sexier than they really were. They're more this and that. Marilyn Monroe is the perfect example who believed it and went along with it. And what did I know any real movie stars that were happily married? I'm a doctor's daughter from the Midwest. I want to get married and have children grandchildren, a family. How many movie stars had that? That's a very good point. And let's get back to Sunset Boulevard. You get assigned to what is now considered one of the great classic films of all time. Your first day of shooting was in Sheldrake's office. Was that literally your first day? First day. With Fred Clark. Do it again. We did it. We did the opening before we did close-ups and things. We did in one shot the whole scene. And I kind of stumbled at a certain point and at when, but I kept going. And I said at the, when he said, okay, cut. I said, Billy, please let's, let me do this again, please. And he said, no, Nancy, that's it. Camera ready for the next shoot. He was famous for this, by the way, Shirley MacLaine and I talked about it, <laughs> that he only let us do one take. And it, 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 it haunts that seems, me. That seems so unfair. I know it haunts me to this day. But somewhere, Billy had a sense, I think, of this, of just starting and finding your way and getting to the end. And that was it. That's well, your 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 introduction in the movie is someone who's put in an awkward position because you're basically telling Sheldrake that Joe Gillis's script is a is I think your words were it's uh, from hunger, and of <laughs> course behind the door is standing Joe Gillis and uh, and uh, speaking of Joe Gillis, obviously it's your first opportunity to work with William Holden. Um, two weeks ago, I interviewed Connie Towers. And oh. ten years later, Connie worked with Bill in The Horse Soldiers with John Wayne. And she said that whereas John Wayne would go outside the hotel and sign autographs all day long, Bill Holden would work, he would leave, and he wouldn't come down to do any of that hand-holding stuff with the fans. Was the impression that you got from Bill was he was all work? Uh, he was very focused on work. He had an unhappy marriage when I was working with him. He was drinking much too much. His career was fading. You know, he did two great movies before he went into the army. Our Town and um, the, the- Golden Boy. Golden Boy, right. And then he went into the army for like three or four years. Now he comes back and he's still under contract to Paramount, but he plays secondary roles. And if it's a if it's a husband and wife, the wife is the star. He's kind of secondary. And uh, his he was desperate, and so was Joe Gillis. And so there was a 
a reality and a depth of understanding of this role that Bill had that that I think was absolutely much a part of his performance. Also, he knew that if he had could show Billy Wilder how gifted he really was, he would his career would be renewed because this part was very challenging. I'm very. so I'm so glad he got the role rather than Montgomery Cliff. I'm a big fan of Montgomery Cliff, but I think Holden had that cynical approach that really, as you say, seemed to be perfectly tuned to him. It was it was what he was feeling. And he was already at that point drinking too much so that he would come in the morning, you know, a little hazy, not strong. And it was Joe Gillis. It was just amazing. And he started a relationship with Billy that did change his life. I mean, Stalag 17, please. Sure. I mean, and starring in films that were just legendary. And I'm so thrilled for him. We became very, very close friends and very affectionate with each other. I mean, every time we saw each other, we'd give big hugs and kisses. <laughs> well, you know, Be Betty is, is kind of, it's interesting. Sunset Boulevard is a, as you point out in the script, it could have gone to another place of, almost farcical in this weird situation, but because of Gloria Swanson's brilliant portrayal of Norma Desmond, uh, everything was kept in place. But I find that Betty, Betty is a glimpse of hope in a movie with no hope. And I'm, I, I have to say, when we go to the New Year's Eve party, where uh, you're at um, uh, Jack Webb as your co-star playing Artie, at his party, it's almost like Joe has left this chaos and is in a little bit of normalcy, and we're all rooting for him. I mean, he calls up uh, he calls up Eric von Stroheim and says to send everything over to Artie's, and then, then that's of course when he finds out that Gloria Swanson has cut her wrists. Um, my friend Steve Mitchell, who's a fellow historian, said today, ask Nancy if the if the New Year's party sequence was chaotic or fun. It was fun. And my future uh, brother-in-law, Jay Livingston, with his partner, Ray Evans, played the piano and sang. <laughs> but, that's a buttons and bows? In my life. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think that, that Bill Holden, the best thing that ever happened to him was to be in that film. It changed his whole life. It really did and his career and, you know, movie stars, male movie stars, I think I've written about this, have an inner connection with the camera that is so unique. I mean, some have it all over the place and some have it a small amount, but Bill had it. It's a kind of incandescence that is communicated. It's, it's, it's very, mysterious actually but it's real well it's funny because the whole concept of movie star has changed so dramatically you know i think that uh you were in the studio system for better or for worse it was a factory it was right. generating new talent and bringing them out for the world to see we no longer have had that we haven't had that for 50 years 
And uh, I think it, you know, people who are ex-wrestlers become movie stars or ex-bodybuilders become movie stars. Uh, you know, they become popular. Um, but, you know, excuse me, Steve, the, the, the script and the whole creation of Sunset is, is truly a work of art. And, what, and the reason that I understood eventually is that it told the truth that to absolutely tell the real, honest, totally clear, open truth is unique. Not a lot of films, they make up things, they pretend this was real. Well, there, and, there is that, a, and that is why it's lasted. There is a story that at one of the first premiere screenings, uh, screenings Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, walked up to Billy and said, how could you do this to us? He he resented the cynicism of that movie. He resented the fact that he was in business not to, to, to create commodities, movie stars, to be sold. And what happened to them, if it was tragic or there were real problems, that's their problem. I mean, it all is about profit and sure. selling something. And the whole world is kind of obsessed with that, aren't they? <laughs> well, speaking of your relationship with Bill Holden, you have a very funny story in the book in the Sunset Boulevard chapter where you're talking about the filming of your kissing sequence on the balcony of the uh, writer's uh, building. And I, please share that with our listeners because that, that's a very cute moment. Well, actually, it was actually on the balcony and, I, and it was shot at night. And I arrived on the set and there is a party going on underneath the balcony with all the wives of the actors and the cameraman and all of that. And I think, oh my God, this is the big love scene. And we get up there and the camera's on a huge apparatus, you know, two stories high. And Billy's sitting in the chair next to the cameraman. And he said, okay, uh, Nancy, you will start over here and then you walk over there and now you, you turn your back and Bill will be here. And then you then he has a mark and he said, you meet here and then uh, he will take you in his arms. And he said, now look, you have to keep kissing Nancy, keep hugging and keep the embrace as passionate as you can, because I am going to fade out on it and I need to... I'm going to pull the camera back as you are embracing. And I don't want you to stop until I say cut. And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> we rehearsed the scene and we get to the, to the moment of the embrace. And uh, Billy would just say, oh, at this point, Bill, just take her in your arms and, and passionately give, kiss her. Okay. Now we, we get back to our, where we're going to start. And I figure again, it's going to be one shot. You better, Nancy, do it. And we start the scene. And I, he asks me what happened. I turn around and face him and answer, you did. And he takes me in his arms and we embrace and kiss and hug and hold each other. And the passion grows. 
we rather are enjoying ourselves. <laughs> and suddenly there is a voice from below saying, Damn it. And it's Mrs. Holden. So it, Billy set this up and said to Mrs. Holden, uh, we'll leave it to you. Let them kiss for a while, but you could say cut. So if this is Bill's Billy's sense of humor and the fun that he had in making a film. And uh, Bill and I never quite recovered. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny, and I, I don't expect magicians to re uh, to reveal their secrets, but kissing someone on camera as an actor is probably always a bit of a challenge. I think it is. But once we did that, we kissed many times, and we did four films together, and we kind of loved kissing, and we, it was, we figured it all out, and we knew how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Steve, what what... I do not want, though, to forget that I did marry Alan Lerner of Lerner and Lowe, and I moved to New York and said to Paramount goodbye. And I was with two people who were going to create some of the legendary pieces of the musical theater. And the first film, that, the first musical that they worked on while I was married to them, to to them, to both of them, uh, was, uh, uh, oh my gosh, the, it's about paint your wagon. And that was, it ran about nine months. It was, it was picked up by MGM to maybe, they made a film of it gen eventually. And then he, they did My Fair Lady, which was dedicated to me. And that took a lot of, oh, before, in between Patriot Wagon and Fair Lady, would they did the movie uh, Royal Wedding, which was with Fred Astaire. Right. And anyway, then we they did My Fair Lady. And I have to tell you, I do write about the process of creating that kind of masterpiece. Well, you were also a big sounding board for them. You were always right in the middle of it. They woke me up in the middle of the night, in the middle of a blizzard. And they said, you've got to come over to the studio, which was down the driveway and across the road. And it was a blizzard. And they were standing there with my heavy coat, galoshes, something for, to put over my head. And I got them, you know, I put that all over my nightgown at three o'clock in the morning. And I said, the children are okay. It's, you know, but that's, I was scared when they woke me up. And anyway, walked down the stairs. We walked down the road with this big flashlight in the middle of the blizzard. And I get into the studio room where the piano and the couch and my chair to sit in. And they did the whole number of the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plane. Uh, Alan played the part of uh, Rex Harrison and the other one, Pickering was played by Fritz, but Fritz was at the piano back and forth. And I was amazed. And I, they looked at me and they said, what do you think? Fritz called me nonce. Nonce, what do you think? <laughs> and I said, you have one serious problem. Oh, what is it? 
nonce. I said, this is the middle of the first act. And when the actors finish this routine and this song, they, the audience will go crazy. They will stand, they will cheer, they will clap, and the actors won't know what to do next. And that's what happened opening night in New Haven. <laughs> and they, the, the, Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison and the guy that did play Pickering, they fall back on the sofa after, you know, finishing and the audience went crazy. And Rex, who was used to doing plays, this is his first musical, and he said, whispered, what do we do? What do we do? And Julie said, hold hands. And when I say go, we stand up, take a bow and come back on the sofa. They held hands, stood up and the audience went cuckoo all over again. <laughs> anyway. So you're, you're retired somewhat from acting now because you're raising your children. You're married to Alan J. Lerner. Children longer, I'm no longer raising my children. They've been raised. <laughs> And my grandchildren have been, well, I mean. How, how did you, um, how did Warner Brothers get you to come over and do Battle Cry with Van Heflin? Um, I think that Jack Warner had a kind of thing about me. And I never actually spent any time with him. Maybe I saw him on the lot and said, how do you do? And we shook hands. But he kept always asking me to play parts. Hmm. And I, I, that's a mystery to me. I really don't know. But when they asked me to do it, it was at a time when my marriage to Alan was really coming apart. And I needed to get away. And I needed to have that time off. And, uh, and it was, I didn't, it was a film that was, there were like three stories in it. And Aldo Ray and I were one story. So I didn't have a huge amount of time that I had to be there. So I was there maybe three, three and a half weeks, something like that. And well, we did a little story with Aldo. It's a nice role. And I think you have great chemistry with Aldo. Tell me a little bit about Aldo. I don't know anything about Aldo Ray other than knowing well, he's an actor. When I was, you know, Alan Lerner ultimately married eight times, my first husband. So he obviously had a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and being faithful was certainly not one of, was one of them. I mean, not one of them. Anyway, uh, Aldo did something very nice. He, he, he became enamored with me and he was, had such a crush and it was, it felt so good. <laughs> And I promise you, he was single, uh, but I, you know, I've had, I had two little girls and I was still in this marriage and I would be married again another more couple of years. And I, so we had, I had to play it very safely. And, um, but I will never forget his dearness. And um, and how he handled me and sensed maybe that I was a little depressed and that I 
my life was not going as well as it might have. And so he, this, he was very responsive in that manner. So it was a great experience for me. The sequence where you're at the family ranch, and I guess you're in, is it New Zealand or Australia? I think you're, you're uh, one of, I don't know. One of those places. But that was probably in California, I would assume. Oh, yeah. All shot in California. All shot in California. The other yeah. film that you did, we talked about a little bit earlier, is after you finished Sunset Boulevard, you must have jumped right into Union Station because they were both released. No. no? First. I'm sorry, I you made. I, I, I did not do Union Station. I did Mr. Music with Bing. Right. Right okay. away. And then went into Union Station. With Mr. Then, Holden. Yeah. Now, did you ever get the, since you were about to do two more pictures with Bill, uh, Force of Arms and Submarine Command, uh, did you ever, were you told that you and Bill Holden were now a screen couple or was it ever okay. formally told you? It was interesting. When I left Paramount, they, you know, Sunset Boulevard was released. And I, the pressure on me to keep working was because the film was so successful. And my reviews were very nice, too. So the I, Force of Arms was a terrible experience for me. I was pregnant for the first child, for Liza. And I knew that my marriage had was was somewhere not there, there there something was different about it. And that Alan was a little bored with me. <laughs> he gets bored very quickly, Alan Lerner. <laughs> and so that I found, but Bill was so dear, he understood, and by the way, I had morning sickness every morning. But I had such pressure to make that film. And Alan Lerner encouraged me, said, Nancy, why don't you go and do it? And I, that, that was an unhappy experience for me. And I'm not very good in that film. Was, and, it, was it the script? Well, the script is not really put together well either. Mm -hmm. You got to have a good script to be able to give you, to give a good performance, sure. you know? And, but everything didn't really work for that film. But Bill was very dear about kind of hovering and taking care of me and very lovely. I wanna, I wanna talk a little bit about your Disney experience before we end our discussion. Uh, so you, you, uh, you met Billy Wilder on one of the back alleys of Paramount Pictures. Uh, in in Walt Disney's case, I think Walt Disney's people got in touch with you to come meet Walt Disney. Is that true? They called and said to me, I was on the island of Mallorca and I talked for briefly with Walt Disney. He was on the phone, which was, you know, I kind of didn't believe it. And but he said that they're making this film, Pollyanna. And he said, well, we're the, for the first time, we are really giving a huge budget to a film that is not animated. And we have nothing but stars from Jane Wyman to Carl Malden to Agnes Moorhead to Carl, everybody was a well-known performer in that. And now we would like Nancy Olson. 
And I said, well, when are you doing it? The end of the summer. I said, I'm coming to California with my two little girls. And I'm going to be at the stay in California for the month of August because my parents now live there in Brentwood, Brentwood Park. And so I stayed at the Oceana overlooking the ocean and we had a suite and I had the my daughter's governess and me. And we always look forward to that month of August at the Oceana with my parents, their grandfather parents. And uh, I said, OK, I'll do it. I hadn't done a film in a couple of years. And I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed working on the Disney lot. I'm sorry that I didn't write something. This is the perfect description. When I went to the Disney lot for the first time, it was like coming to a small town. If you go to Warner Brothers or Paramount or MGM, it's like a big city. You go to Disney and it's like everybody knows everybody. Everybody calls everybody by their first name, including Walt. Hi, Walt. Hi, Joe. I, I, I got a chance to work on the lot in uh, 1991. I was assigned as the unit publicist on Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, which was the sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. So I got a chance to spend time on the lot. And it's just as you describe. It's a small town. Everybody knows it. Even the buildings are adorable. They're small, the animation buildings. So the, the movie that follows Pollyanna, which I watched the other night, I had been many years, I watched The Absent-Minded Professor. And I have to tell you that, and I think I told you this already, that for 1961, the special effects in that movie were quite extraordinary. And I have to ask you, the sequences when you're in the gymnasium watching this basketball game where Fred McMurray's Professor Brainerd has put the flubber on their tennis shoes so they bounce. Uh, uh, were you watching any of this or were you just told to laugh and yell? I, I was watching it and I was absolutely mesmerized. Uh, I agree with you. I think that that basketball scene is is the most amazing when you think about the anti anti gravity of all the players with their on the soles of their shoes. You know they they bounce up into the air and come through the net themselves. <laughs> I mean, it is brilliant. So I think I, I would assume that you have basketball players on wires. Is that how it was shot? You know something. Some, uh, yes, of course, but I don't remember how it was actually, how it came off. I, I Listen, I was up in the car, up at the top of the ceiling of the, of the you know, the soundstage with, <laughs> with uh, behind us, a scene of the sky and the clouds and- Right, you're in, the, you're in uh, Fred's Model T, you're, you're uh, flying through the air, exactly fly up, you know, over the, over the, over the, the, the earth. I mean, I was a little scared up there. I kept saying, you're sure we're okay? Uh, we're, we're, we're solid, right? I mean, and I thought Fred was wonderful too. 
Well, it's interesting about Fred McMurray. Fred McMurray makes a film in 1960, the same year that you're making Pollyanna. He makes The Apartment. And he plays, uh, you know, he plays, interestingly, he plays the character named Sheldrake, which is, I guess, yeah. one of Billy's favorite names. And he's, of course, having this affair with Shirley MacLaine. And apparently after the release of that movie, he got a lot of pushback from fans saying, how could you possibly play that horrible character? And <laughs> so I think he was very eager to change his image. So these Disney films came, I think, at the right time for him. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, he goes into My Three Sons, the television series. He plays the dad of those three boys. But right. did you enjoy Fred? He was a lot of fun. He was a darling man he really was and he was he had a simplicity we both grew up in milwaukee wisconsin so we would share stories about where we grew up and how we grew up and how different it was now again fred was as old as my father i mean the it, the age difference was bill and i were only 10 years apart thank god but with fred but fred was the most natural performer that I think I've ever worked with. He was he so prepared. He you, it looked like he was just doing it off the top of his head. No, he was prepared. And he was a wonderful performer. I had tremendous regard for him. And we were friends. He was very Republican and I am very Democratic. <laughs> And so that he would discuss politics with Waltz, who was also a Republican. And but we would talk about growing up and about life. And also, he was married to June Haver at the time. And that was his last wife. And they had twin daughters. And he made dinner every night. And at the end of the day, he would sit there and say, Nancy, what should I make tonight? Now, last night we had lamb chops. And <laughs> were you ever invited over to his house for dinner? Never. So he kept it pretty much to the stage. He kept very much a simplicity about his life. I don't think they ever gave a party, ever. He came to one of my parties. Yeah, your parties are fairly well known. I mean, you were quite the uh, party uh, maker. Uh, yes. Very elegant parties. In fact, mo much of the book is devoted to your uh, philanthropic efforts with the Music Center and your involvement with educating young people, which I found very interesting. Well, thank you. But Steve, also, now, you know, I was divorced and I was alone for five years, which was also very, which I've written about and I've described and the interesting life. And I did three plays on Broadway during that time. And then I met the love of my life and the most wonderful man, Alan Livingston. Well, the same initials. <laughs> NOL has been my monogram since I was 21. That's pretty funny. Yeah, he, he seems like a, well, he was a giant in his own end of the business, both in he music was, and TV. He was probably one of the more brilliant and educated people that I have, well, so was Alan Lerner. Alan graduated from Harvard. Alan Livingston had was accepted at Yale, but he went to Penn because his brother was there. And I mean, he graduated with honors from Pennsylvania University is one of the 
you know, one of the great universities is in there with Yale and Harvard and Princeton and all of them. And um, he was a, a genius in his own way. And he had a focus of knowing talent and recognizing it and knowing how to develop it and support it. And, uh, you know, speaking of entertaining, I gave several parties for the Beatles. Yes, celebrated parties. In fact, uh, Alan is recognized as having really brought the Beatles to Capitol Records, which of course probably was one of the great well, clues. He signed them and he came home one day or he called me from the office. He never came home for lunch. And he called me from Capitol Records and he said, Nancy, I'm coming home for lunch. I said, oh my God, why? I want you to hear something. And he came home and he said, we had a very quick lunch. And then he played this little record for me. And it was, I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. <laughs> and I said, Alan, I'm sorry. That is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and he said, Nancy, in the 40s, there were the big bands. The 30s, the big bands. The 40s, he said, Frank took over Broadway and Paramount, you know, the, the, the uh, theater in New York. I mean, the, you, the traffic couldn't, you couldn't get through when he entertained. He said, the 50s belonged to Elvis. He said, it's now the 60s. And he said, this is the next step. Wait, what a prophet he was. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm telling you that to explain who he was. He, he was amazing. And also, he, he was the president of a large, and he made it the most successful record company at that time. And he, he also, by the way, left Capitol earlier before he married me, and he went to NBC television. All the record companies, RCA, wanted him out of Capitol because they, they couldn't compete with him. And so he now went to, to, to te television, and he created Bonanza. And that story is also interesting, which I've written about. Yes, definitely, that definitely. And signs the Beach Boys, the Beatles, the band. I mean, he was truly. You had a thing, you had a, you, you had a thing for AL, and he had a thing for B. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Nancy, this this has been so great, and I, I I I love strolling down memory lane with you, just like you strolled down the. Um, the what's the name of the square on the Paramount lot where you're walking with Bill? Uh, um, uh, well, it's he, where all the old uh, houses are and the, where they shoot. Right, right, right. Uh, uh, Bill, Bill says something. That that's one of the in Sunset Boulevard. That's one of my favorite scenes when you're taking the walk and you talk a little bit about your nose. And you yeah. tell you tell me in the book, of course, that after that everybody was asking who did your notes. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Who was the doc? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have been listening to Nancy Olson, Nancy Olson Livingston. Again, her book is called A Front Row Seat. And in fact, um, I have it right here. I was going to mention the subtitle. It's not in front of me though, but uh it's um 
it's quite a study of her life from many different points of view. I mean, it's her point of view, but many facets of her life, her her celebrated marriages, but her performances. And we're we we've really enjoyed a lot of a lot of your work, Nancy, in so many ways. And and it's it will be all it'll be always with us. It'll always be with us. And I find that I can watch Sunset Boulevard every year and never get tired of it. There's something very contemporary about it because it tells the truth and it you can never erase that ever. Thank exactly. you so much, Steve. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Nancy. And again, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. And we'll see you next time.